Today I don't feel like doing anything I just wanna lay in my bed Don't feel like picking up my phone So leave a message at the tone Cause today I swear I'm not doing anything uh, I'm gonna kick my feet up then stare at the fan Turn the TV on, throw my hand in my pants You are listening to the Philip K. Dick Book Club, a companion series to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this series, we're looking at the entire works of Philip K. Dick. In this episode, we'll be studying The Piper in the Woods. The Piper in the Woods was published in Imagination in February 1953. Okay, let's just jump into the story. This is one of my favorites. So Dr. Henry Harris is our main character, um, at least at the beginning. Yeah, I think he's the main character throughout the story. Dr. Henry Harris, he's debriefing a corporal, they're, they're, Corporal Westerberg. And they're at some major military base on an asteroid. It's, they're kind of doing deep space exploration, deep space mining operations, but it's a military base on this asteroid. It's a checkoff point for ships arriving from deep space to the inner solar system. Um, and so Harris receives this report that Westerberg is simply suffering from a delusion and he's a psychiatrist or psychologist and his job is to kind of debrief this corporal, figure out what's wrong with him, get him back to work. The interview reveals that Westerberg believes he's a plant. While the delusion seems to involve no physical transformation, Westerberg has abandoned all of his labor and just sits around all day. Harris reports this finding to the base commander and suggests that he'll need another interview. And when asked about like, well, so Cox, Cox like the base commander, and he says, the first thing they noticed was that he wouldn't do any work. The garrison chief reported this Westerberg would just wander off outside in the garrison and sit all day long, just sit, just sit in the sun. Then at nightfall, he would come back in. When they asked why he wasn't working, he told them that he had to be out in the sun. He said work was unnatural, that it was a waste of time, that the only thing worthwhile was to sit and contemplate outside. So that's kind of setting up the plot. So one evening, Harris asks the robot for directions to Westerberg's quarters. So we have a nice little window into automation. This is never far from Dick's mind, the role of robotics and automation and how that will affect our lives. So we get a little taste of it here. He gets directions to Westerberg's quarters and he finds that Westerberg is asleep and he can't be woken up. And then later on though, the next day he finds his patient sitting out in the sun. Now, I'm not quite sure how sitting out in the sun really works on the asteroid, because that seems pretty far from the sun, um, at least by what humans would have been used to. But let's just suspend our disbelief a little bit. He's sitting out in the sun. They engage in a more philosophical conversation about the nature of his delusion. Harris challenges the corporal on the necessity of work for a complex society. Westerberg counters that there's really no need for work, particularly the work of extraterrestrial exploration. And then later on, the base commander Cox reports that more plants are reviving from this asteroid Y3. 
So sorry, I guess I confused the setting. So yeah, Y3 is the asteroid these people are coming from, but they're at at a base closer to Earth. So that, that I guess, explains why they're able to sit on the sun pretty easily. Anyways, this conversation the two have, the psychiatrist and the patient have, it, it's pretty interesting. So Wester, Westerberg just says he's going to sit, you know, and look at the sun all day. And that's all he does. He's a, he's a plant. He doesn't need to do anything else. And the doctor's response is, is, well, you've been trained. What about your meaning in life? What about your work? He says, what about your job? You went to school for years to become a patrolman. You wanted to enter the patrol very badly. You were given a fine rating and a first class position. And then he says, well, don't you want to have your job? And the response is, that's okay. And he just you know, he's not much of a response to it. He just says, that's okay. I don't really care about that. I don't care about losing my kind of meaning in life, my position. And so the Dr. Harris, he responds, well, suppose everyone did what you did. Suppose everyone wanted to sit in the sun all day. What would happen? No one would check ships coming from outer space. Bacteria and toxic crystals would enter the system and cause meth, death, and suffering. And then his response is, well, if they didn't waste all this energy going into space, they wouldn't have to. You know, they could just stay on Earth. And so they go back and forth this way where Paris is trying to convince Westerberg of the necessity of work for a well-functioning society. Um, and obviously this is a story about the work ethic and labor and the, the role of work in our societies. So eventually we learn there's about 20 people claiming to be plants. They've all arrived from the asteroid. Some of the patients include high-level officers from the base. And what Harris notices is that none of them are insane. None of them are really pathologically mentally ill in some way that, you know, he's used to seeing as a psychiatrist. He thinks they're all rational. They're all sane. They just all claim to be plants. So Harris goes to the commander and, and shows him a video, a video he had with one of the patients. Now, this guy's Robert Bardshaw, and he was the former chief biologist on the asteroid Y3. And in the interview, he explains that he is not a biological plant, but he's taken on the psychology of plants. So we get a more sophisticated confession of what being a plant really means. And he also tells how he learned how to become a plant from the pipers that live on the woods of the asteroid. Now, here we really have to suspend our disbeliefs that we have an asteroid with trees. But um, again, just you have to bear with Phil K. Dick sometimes. So Harris decides he has to figure out what's going on here, so he travels to asteroid Y3. Um, now, the explanation about why it's able to have an Earth-like gravity is that it has a really heavy core, um, and it's somehow covered with woods. Now, this is something that's gone on Earth. There's no trees on Earth, so we, we get an important revelation at this point in the story that basically Earth is entirely deforested, and these woods are something that these soldiers, these miners, the, the I guess they're half soldiers, half miners, workers there would have not experienced on Earth. So it's really a new experience for them. Harris learns of new cases and it learns out he turns out that about it seems the construction going on near my house is never ending. But good thing I can just pause this and hopefully get right back on track. Um, anyways, about 10% of the garrison at Y3 has been afflicted with this delusion that they're plants or have come to the conclusion that they're plants. And Harris is starting to doubt that it's a real delusion at this point. 
Lawrence Watts, the garrison chief, worries that important tasks are no longer being done at the base, since it's a frontier setting, everyone has an important job to do. And Harris learns from Watts also that there is indigenous woodland population. Apparently they're related to Martians, but they have this dark copper-colored skin. They're considered civilized and based on the description of the Pipers that Harris got earlier, it doesn't seem that they can be the Pipers. The most interesting part of this section of the story is this conversation about the necessity of work. And this is something Harris brought up earlier that kind of everyone needs to work, but it's more fully articulated here by the maintenance or the kind of the, the head of staff here on the asteroid. Look what happens when one person steps away from his job. Everything else begins to creak. We can't service the bugs if no one services the machines. We can't order food to feed the crews if no one makes out reports, takes inventories. We can't direct any kind of activity if the second-in-command decides to go out and sit in the sun all day. Thirty people, one-tenth of the garrison, but we can't run without them. The garrison is built this way. If you take the supports out of the whole, the whole building falls, no one can leave. We're all tired, and these people know it. They know they have no right to do it, run off on their own. No one has the right anymore. We're all too tightly interwoven to suddenly start doing what we want. It's unfair to the rest, the majority. So we have an argument that people must suppress their individualism, their individual identity for the good, good of the community. Well, Harris just decides to go out and visit the woods to, to see what happens, to experience what the people of the crew, exper the, the crew of the asteroid experienced. So he goes out there and he comes to an indigenous girl. To Harris, she is very beautiful and she's primordial. She speaks the earth language, Terran. I don't know, I guess it's English, but you know, it's, it's written in English. So whatever the Terran language is at this time, she speaks that. They talk for a little while and then she expresses her willingness to take him to see the Pipers. So flash forward in time a little bit, Harris is returning to the base on Earth with the mystery solved. He reveals that the Pipers are a mass hypnosis that the crew of the military base experienced after facing the primitive experiences and the primitive existence of the indigenous people and the beauty of the woods, experiencing nature, um, perhaps for the first time. Quote, these men are put down suddenly on an asteroid. They're put down on an asteroid where there are natives living the most primitive of existence, completely vegetable lives. No concept of goal, no concept of purpose, and hence no ability to plan. The natives live the way the animals live, from day to day, sleeping, picking food from the trees, a kind of garden of Eden existence, without struggle or conflict. Each of the garrison crew sees the natives and unconsciously thinks of his own early life when he was a child, when he had no worries, no responsibilities, before he joined modern society, a baby lying in the sun. But he cannot admit this to himself. He cannot admit that he wants to live like the natives, to lie and sleep all day. So he invents the Pipers, the idea of a mysterious group living in the woods who trap him, lead him into their own kind of life. Then he can blame them, not himself. They teach him to become the Piper in the woods. Sorry, they teach him to become part of the woods. And, and that's the explanation we're given, the psychological explanation of what's been going on here. It's the exact opposite of their life on the base. In fact, the exact opposite of their entire upbringing in a modern industrial spacefaring technological society. So as the story ends, Harris is unpacking his luggage from his trip to the asteroid and begins to show some characteristics of being a plant. So, you know, 
he he's also kind of fallen into this delusion, even though he understands that as at an intellectual level, he he accepts it and he starts to become a plant as well. So that's the story. Um, analysis. Well, the Piper of the Woods is about the work ethic. It's really that's this is Dick's classic story about the work ethic. I can't think of any other work that at least from this period of Dick's writing that takes on the question of the work ethic as well uh, and as intimately as Piper in the Woods. The crew members who are becoming plants are rejecting the work regimen they're facing on the asteroid. As Harris explains in his diagnosis, all their life they've been schooling, schooled by complex modern society, fast temp and high integration between people, constant pressure towards some goal, some job to be done, end quote. Harris's original patient questioned the work ethic. He said, why do we even have to work? He says, if we work hard, all we're going to do is exploit other planets, other stars, other asteroids. We're just going to go out and keep exploiting and not really improving ourselves in any way. So what you have here in the story is a type of almost blue flu, a mass psych, you know, where everyone becomes sick all at once as a way of resisting work. The mass psychosis is effective. It almost brings to an end the operations on the base. Now, unlike the frontiers that we see in some other Dick novels, like The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, um, or Days of Perky Pat, I guess that's essentially a related story. Two Degree Martian Time Slip is a little bit different, but in some, you know, Dick doesn't have a consistent frontier image, and I've talked about this before in some other episodes. You know, here, though, we have a frontier where work is necessary. And there's other frontiers where there's really not a need for work and people just can just sit around all day and, and, and cope with being bored with life. Here, work is necessary. It has to be done. Everyone's labor is required and still they resist. So, you know, that's what it is. But in that sense, this becoming Pipers or the Piper in the Woods argument becomes almost a form of work resistance, a form of strike. Now, the natives of Asteroid Y3 are modeled off the idea of the noble savage, of course. Um, this is a very American concept. The no idea of the noble savage is comes out of the European view of, of indigenous people of the Americas. The idea of the noble savage is that they lack civilization, but by doing that, they live in harmony with nature, kind of like Pocahontas in the movie teaching John Smith about the colors of the wind. They hunt, they fish, they enjoy a life without the rigors of modern industrial life, and they also avoid all the sins. That's why they're noble. They avoid the, the sins, the evils, the corruptions of modern society, such as business, capitalism, government, taxation, war, all these things they are managed to avoid. The woods and the life lived within them are to the crew the lost innocence of humanity, literally the Garden of Eden, according to, to Harris. Now, why did this noble savage idea emerge in the West? Well, partially it comes out of Enlightenment philosophy, which was trying to explain why did government emerge and what are the characteristics of government? And then from that, what is the best form of government that people can embrace? Well, they wanted to see the origin of government. And if you believe government has an origin, you must believe there's a time before government. And then what would that be like? Well, what would you be your evidence of what that would be like? You know, people don't have memory of it. There's no record of life before government, before writing, before civilization. Well, 
you have the Indians. So they could look to the Indians and say, this is our record of what we were like before civilization. Of course, it's a very racist story, but it's a very popular motif in American writing. And here, Dick seems to be building off of it. Obviously, Harris eroticizes the native girl he meets, much how Europeans eroticized the colonial other, um, both in America and other places. Quote, she was lovely, very lovely, with long dark hair that wound around her shoulders and arms. Her body was slim, very slender, with a supple grace to it that made him stare, unaccustomed as he was to the various forms of anatomy. How silent she was silent and unmoving, staring down at the water. Time passed, strange, unchanging time as he watched the girl." End quote. So there's this uh, fascination with the girl's physical form, um, her idleness. She kind of just sits there staring at the water in her beauty. Um, so I do think there's a degree of eroticism of, of the other here. She reflects everything that modern civilization is not, even pulling Harris into a fresh conception of time. Now, as historians such as E.P. Thompson and Herbert Gutman and thinkers such as Bob Black have pointed out, the clock is one of those central innovations of modernity, right? The clock, the, the, the clock telling you when to go to work, the clock organizing production, the clock organizing our lives, right? We become slaves to the clock, right? Um, we invent the clock, but through that invention, we enslave ourselves. Right? We no longer have control about our day. You know, Things start at a certain time. We don't start when we want them to start. They don't start when things are natural. They start you know, you know, when the clock says so. The clock is, though, one of the central innovations of modernity. And, and some historians have really talked about this. I think the essay I'm, think, I'm thinking of is called The Tyranny of, of the Clock. That's not by Bob Black. That's by Job, uh, uh, what's his name? George Woodcock. Bob Black's article is on... Idle, in praise of idleness, or one of these anti-work, the abolition of work, maybe. He's, it's one of these anti-work essays, but he's, he thinks about uh, the clock as well. So, by becoming plants, the garrison crew is, in a sense, going to Croatan. Uh, like the people at the colony of Roanoke, who just wrote Croatan on the tree and fled off to live with the Indians. I guess that's the, one of the more popular theories of what happened to that colony. By becoming plants, these, these crew is just be doing the same thing, going to Croatan, becoming native. Now, the environmental politics of the story are certainly there. Um, it does seem to be that Earth has been fully deforested and humans are therefore going out into space to exploit other environments. We saw this before in Beyond Lives, the WUB, where you know basically the crew are poachers who are trying to feed Earth by you know, harvesting and animals on other planets. For the garrison on asteroid Y3, the woods are an overwhelming drive. An uncontrollable instinct drives them to visit it. Now, perhaps there's an argument to be made here that even if we deforce Earth, our ancestors evolved in a natural environment, right? A question we could ask is like, why do most people, probably all people, find trees beautiful, find certain scenery, scenic portraits, beautiful. Almost all cultures, I think probably all cultures have an artistic tradition of landscapes in one form or another, right? But most people when see this, they find it beautiful. Why is that? Well, we could say perhaps it's because we evolved in a certain environment, right? Or maybe we have a certain connection to trees that's almost biological, rooted in our nature. 
maybe even our physical evolution is connected to trees. You know, maybe the fact that we stand on two legs allows us to climb trees. I, I'm not sure. I'd have to talk to an evolutionary biologist to get that. But the point I'm trying to make is, is there a almost instinctual desire to be one with the trees or one be one with nature that even if we were to tear down all the trees on earth, it would still be in our DNA. The mass psychosis of becoming plants suggests a desire to return to the state before the environment on earth was destroyed. Corporal Westerberg puts forward this uh, critique of progress when he's explaining why he becomes a plant. He says, we should stop working because if we keep working, we're just going to destroy other um, um, environments. If everyone felt the way I do, they wouldn't be going into outer space, is what Westerberg says. Um, so what else does this say about work? It, it, it tells us a lot about work. One is, you know, we, we can critique this idea of, of growth, you know, how we measure economic growth, right? Certainly Westerberg here at the end does. You know, if I cut down a tree, I chop it up into wood and sell it at Home Depot, that's economic progress, right? That's, that's GDP that goes into the tally as economic growth for, for the nation. But in a sense, it's, it's devastating. It destroys environments, it destroys ecosystems, and maybe in the long term, it's not that good for us. So we're in a position here that perhaps we can start to critique work itself uh, you know, as devastating. It could be at the end of the day that the person who stays at home and smokes pot uh, all day, the bum, playing video games, whatever he's doing, that that person is of less damage to society than someone who works all day because their work, for whatever reason, is destructive to our natural environment, our our solidarity, our community, or whatever. So I don't think Dick is making this this explicit, but I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting we can think of it in those terms and maybe we should start to think about work in in new ways. We're, of course, reminded of David Graeber's article, The Phenomenon of BS Jobs. I don't think I can give you the full title here without losing my clean rating on, on iTunes. But uh, The Phenomenon of BS Jobs is the name of the essay. And there, Graeber explores jobs that people do that really don't have any benefit. You know, jobs that you know, aren't necessary jobs that are there just because other people do that. He talks about armies that way. You know, if you, if no one has armies, you don't need soldiers anymore. It's only because one people have soldiers that someone else needs soldiers. Um, but he also talks about a lot of these jobs, you know, people who sit around in offices, consultants, corporate lawyers. These are jobs he deems simply aren't that valuable, that don't have any use at the end of the day. And he's been continuing to work on that. And I think he's working on a book um, as I'm recording this on that phenomenon. Now, these aren't BS jobs, right? In fact, the commander makes it very clear that these are all, these are frontier jobs. Everyone's work is important. So that's not quite the phenomenon we're talking about. It's a broader type of unnecess unnecessariness or, or devastation. It's that the work they're doing or to accomplish their goal, they need to do this work. But the question is, is the goal valuable? Is the goal necessary? And the mass delusion allows these workers to reject the idea that this work is valuable. And, you know, we readers, you know, start to sympathize with the characters who just want to sit around all day under the sun. 
Anyways, a great story, a, you know, a great window into Dick's view on work. It's going to be a, an oncoming theme in his, in his, uh, in his writing. Um, I'm thinking especially of the novel Galactic Pot Healer, which I think might be his magna opus on this theme of work and creativity and, and all that. And certainly I'll get to that eventually in this um, Philip K. Dick book club. But anyways, let me wrap up uh, The Piper in the Woods. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you have any comments or if you have your own, your own experience reading this story, please comment. You can rate, subscribe, share, do all that stuff to help get uh, word about this podcast out to, the, to, to other people. Uh, if you enjoyed this, you might enjoy my 100 pages podcast where I look at other American writers uh, reading their works 100 pages at a time. It's on the same channel, so you subscribe to this. You get both at the same time. Um, so I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Just one.